Hello everyone, this is Tommy Uren and I'm here with Brian Dye, who is the CEO of Corelight. G'day Brian, how are you? Tom, doing well, how about yourself? Hey, I'm good. So this is a Risky Business News sponsored interview and today we thought we'd talk about the role of NDR, Network Detection and Response, in response in the longer term. Now, Brian, when you said that you were interested in talking about NDR and its role in incident response. My first thought was that, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But I always had thought of NDR as a sort of near real-time thing. I see something on the network. (laughs) I guess it's all in the acronym, right? I see it on the network, I detect it, and then I respond. And you want to respond quickly, prevent things from getting worse. But when it comes to incident response, there's some bad thing that's happened and I'm pulling on the threads and trying to get back to a good state. So how does that work with network detection? Yeah, it it really is a bit of both actually, because this whole category, and we certainly as a company are gonna find detections, right? We're gonna find active threats, we're gonna find vulnerabilities being targeted, we're gonna find anomalous activity that's that's highly suspicious. There's absolutely a real-time element of this, but we find that actually there's lots of things that detect, right? You can drive detections from EDR, from the network, from the cloud, from identity. There's a whole host of detection. Where I think the network is especially valuable is no matter where a given detection came from, how do you actually map and understand the totality of that attack? How do you drive triage? How do you drive attack scoping? How do you drive the confirming containment and confirming elimination of that threat? Connecting the dots across these attacks, I think is actually even the more powerful side of what NDR does. And you know, to your point on response, response in different organizations we find means many, many different things. It's usually not one click, fully automated, changing things on your network. I think we've all learned that lesson years ago that the uh, the FP risk on that is a trifle high for, for most folks to to tackle. Right? But, you know, we see everything from folks yeah driving through response playbooks to actually going and and you know kind of directly updating things on the network for sure. Did you say FP risk? Yeah, like if you think that you've got something that is being fixed correctly and then you fix the wrong thing, you're taking entire network subnets offline, you're taking chunks of your cloud offline, that's a problem. You know, compare that to the EDR world, that if you take the wrong host offline, you're disturbing one person. You're not taking, you know, business applications offline. Yeah. Now, one thing that you said that was interesting was that you described network detection or network information as a kind of glue that you could use to, I guess, stick together different types of detection. Exactly. One of the things we find folks really value working with, again, the NDR category and us specifically is, once you've got an alert, what's the whole attack that that alert is part of, right? You may have a command and control beaconing out of a out of a server. That command and control, that was an established penetration. How did they get in? What was the lateral movement? What was the point of incursion? You've got a bunch of tracing of that broader attack to get through to understand where that happened. Otherwise, as one of my colleagues put it, if you show up and you've got an infected C2 server and you just rebuild it without really understanding how the attack got there in the first place, you've more or less hosed down the crime scene, right? You, you've solved the short-term <laughs> problem, but you're not out of the woods yet. Right. Okay. And so in terms of instant response, does that imply that you've got an archive of network data that you would go back and look at when you come to trying to reconstruct, I guess, the crime scene or how the crime went down in that analogy? It would be fantastic if you do, right? So if you have that data, it's wonderful to be able to use. If you don't, you can still go and deploy sensors to understand what's happening on your network because you can still find recurrence of attacker activity. 
command and control, beaconing, lateral movement, things like that. But if you have it in advance, it, it does make the, the job wildly, uh, wildly easier. And look, I'm, I'm happy to kind of walk through a, an investigation to kind of put more teeth on, around that if it's useful. Yeah, I think that'd be interesting. One question I have immediately is just how many of your customers do tend to archive network data and how long? And is it actually the data or is it just detections and I guess a high level summary of what's going on? Oh, no. Almost everyone we work with retains the data. And I would say I've never talked to anyone that does less than 30 days. And we have some folks that actually store it indefinitely. And that's actually one of the real, I think, benefits of, of Corelight is if you think about how networks were investigated 10 years ago, you either had NetFlow data, which is the arrivals and departures board of the airport. It tells you something, but it's not diagnostically super useful. Or you had PCAP, which has everything you could ever want to know, but you can only afford to store it for three to seven days, and you need to investigate a threat from two or three months ago. So most folks, I think, are looking at more of a nine to 12 month retention, because if you can get that kind of Goldilocks in between the two of high fidelity data, but still a much smaller volume than full PCAP, then you get the luxury of a year uh, pretty typically. And then we have some folks literally that have, especially from the open source community, because we're an open source heritage company, we actually work, do work with some folks that have 20 plus years of this data retained. <laughs> that is a little a unusual time. though. Yeah, I mean, do they ever go back and look at anything? I mean, how, how often are they looking at time periods that old? Like, why are they keeping it? <laughs> Not often, right? In, in this particular case, they're keeping it because A, it's on very, very cheap storage. So it's like, even if it's once in a blue moon, you would look right. at it, it's so cheap, you don't really worry about it. But then if you look, think, looking back farther in time, you're looking for increasingly more sophisticated, advanced adversaries that might be in your environment for a long time. Uh, but you're also driving things like, oh, now I have a corpus of data across my environment I can use for my other analytics or baselining for detection engineering. You can even do kind of long-term behavioral trending of your environment, right? How is it growing for kind of business forecasting, things like that. So it becomes almost a, a data lake resource. Uh, again, a, a great line from a customer we work with. He commented that asking what the use case is for great data is like asking what the use case is for plastic, right? It, it's all of them. So if you've got this wonderfully kind of neutral ground truth data for your environment and it's that cheap to hang on to, why wouldn't you keep it is, is kind of his perspective. So you're not capturing packets, but you're capturing kind of a, a summary of the network traffic. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, we take the we take the entire traffic streams. So we're not operating on NetFlow or anything like that. We take 100% of the incoming traffic and we turn that into about 1% of outbound signal, both uh, logs, extracted files, uh, raw detections, new primitives, right? We'll generate, uh, we use our own ML to generate new kind of uh, insights on the behaviors that are happening. But we're kind of the Goldilocks between 50 times more data than NetFlow is going to give you and 100 times less than PCAP is going to give you. Yeah, right. Now, you said that you could talk through a kind of standard incident. Yeah, happy to. It, it, was a, it was a conversation I had relatively shortly after I joined Corelight with a, uh, a very, very good incident response consultant. I just opened the conversation by saying, look, uh, treat me like an idiot, right? Well, why does this network data really matter? And the, <laughs> the story he walked me through was a franchise breach investigation. So this consulting firm was called into kind of a pretty large scale franchise, 10,000 plus kind of franchise locations. And the franchise was notified, uh, in this case by Visa, that they had credit card skimmers deployed somewhere in the environment, right? And that's pretty typical, right? If you're getting external notification, the financial firms uh, and sometimes you know, things like the Department of Homeland Security in the US, and its analogies kind of in countries around the world are often the notifiers. And so the way he walked it through, it was almost like there was the first half and the second half of the investigation. And the first half of the investigation, 
I was expecting him to talk about threat detection, malware investigation, the types of things that naturally come to mind. But that wasn't where he started the story. He started the story with, my first problem was that I have 10,000 plus franchise locations. I think I have somewhere between tens and maybe a hundred or two that are actually infected with these credit card skimmers. Where on earth do I start? So using that ground truth view of the network to get a super broad view of the environment so then they could whittle down where they do incremental kind of instrumentation and, and investigation, that was actually the first part of, of where he kicked the story off, which to, which to me was very eye-opening because it's not all where my head went. Right, right, right. And so then what's the next step? Like you figure out you know where the, I, I guess, are they infected hosts are and then just clean them up. And I, I can see that, NDR would have a role in that. I presume you would try and figure out some sort of detection for that particular, I guess in this case, skimmer, right? And then well, if you've got actually, good there, coverage. There were, yeah, there were two parts in there. And this is the classic balance, right? The network gives you breadth, the endpoint gives you depth, right? So you're always going to get this yin and yang, right? This combination of the two. So in this investigation, once they used the network to narrow down where the most likely stores were, they went and did an EDR deployment onto the point of sale terminals to identify the malware. Once they found the malware, now we're back to that, that C2 example from earlier. How did the malware get there? So they bounced back to the network to do the tracing of what wound up being actually a five-step lateral movement campaign that actually got the attacker from what was initially a phishing email through five steps of lateral movement found the actual command and control server, and then actually found the malware on the point of sale terminals. So that was a bunch of classic attack tracing. Some of that they actually did have detections for. Some of that they built new detections so that they could confirm containment. You're, you're absolutely kind of right on that lens. But it wasn't, it wasn't just the detection piece. It was the actual attack scoping. So they were sure they had really found the entire scope of the attack, not just the instance of the malware itself. And so by the end of that process, I guess you've got both EDR and NDR detections that would alert you if you'd missed something. Is that the idea? So you can then put hand on your heart and say, yes, it's clean. We've done everything. If there's anything else there, it's something different. Yeah, exactly. Because you can look for all of the the outbound indicators at that point, right? You can look for uh, the most straightforward one is command and control. And again, in this particular case, because they didn't and couldn't in this time actually get kind of an EDR deployment driven everywhere. And even if they tried, they weren't sure they were exactly going to get everything. The network is a way more efficient way to look for those indicators of failed containment, right? Because they got through the investigation, they had to demonstrate containment and remediation. That's where the network wound up being incredibly important. The story also got quite interesting after that, because you know the way he told it, this is a pretty big breach scenario. They flew 16 consultants in for eight weeks to work yeah, I was, on it. I was going to say, this sounds like it would take quite a while. Yeah, there's real human effort here. There's real expertise. There's real money being spent. And at the end of it, he said, you know, most people think that's where the story would end. But what happens is after the eight weeks and the 16 people, 14 of those 16 left. Two consultants, one he was one of them, stayed on. And he said, at that point, the lawyer showed up. And if you think the 14 instant response consultants were expensive, wait until you see what the lawyers cost. <laughs> it seems like if you've got 10,000 franchises to roll out EDR to all of those places would really, really take a long time. And I guess the network must have had some sort of topology where you could more easily get coverage that was pretty comprehensive. Was that the situation there? It was. And, and really, again, I'm, I'm not dinging any side of this because I've heard of some amazingly fast EDR deployments, by the way. I, I think the, 
various leaders in that space, you know, CrowdStrike, Microsoft, Sentinel One, et cetera, have done a wonderful job with their ease of deployment. The role of the network winds up being, I think, two things in particular. Uh, one is you've got assurance of coverage, right? There's only so many paths for traffic to leave a given environment, whether that's a cloud, a data center, a set of remote offices, franchise offices, whatever it is. So you can be sure that you've got coverage, right? Anything that you do that's host-centric, you're not 100% sure that you've got everything actually instrumented. So that tends to be one. And then the second one is the network gives you ground truth. You can't change the shape of the traffic and still be uh, actually transmitted by the switches and the routers. So you can try to hide with encryption and some other things like that, but that benefit of ground truth, which gives folks the confidence that they really see what's going on. And by the way, that goes back to what the lawyers are there for, right? You have to prove to the lawyers that you can identify and attest to the scope of the breach so that they can get in front of the audit committee and the board and everything else and actually say, yeah, the, the breach is, it's not a bread basket, it's a, it's a slice of bread or whatever it is, right? That, that defensibility and that ground truth is really important. So just coverage and ground truth, we find are the two kind of irreplaceable values the network brings. One thing I was wondering about is that you've got this corpus of data. How do people who come in at a kind of instant response time, how do they view it and how do they integrate it with other things? And I, I guess I've just got to ask the inevitable AI ML question as well. Where do you see that going with the type of data that CoreLight generates? Yeah. In terms of how folks actually look at these data and detections, we think a lot about kind of different customers have different SOC architectures. So in very large organizations, right, you've got hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in your security team, they tend to have a data lake and they want to put our data and detections into that massive data lake, which could be a huge Splunk environment or a Chronicle estate or a BigQuery deployment or Hadoop or whatever the case is. And we help them with the dashboards and the other kind of tools that will help them be successful there, analyst training, kind of all that type of stuff. When you go down to folks, uh, there are a little more than mere mortals where, where the rest of us tend to play, where your security teams aren't quite that big. We still give folks full access to every bit of data that we have, but we'll also give them a, a SaaS UI so they can actually get guided workflows and triage uh, for alert triage and things like that out of the box with us. It's funny you bring up the, the ML and AI point. I, I think, as you said, like how could we possibly end a conversation without touching on it? <laughs> it's almost like we wouldn't be doing our jobs. On the ML front, we're, we're huge fans of ML and all other forms of advanced statistics, by the way. That's just one catch-all phrase for a bunch of kind of advanced math that we use both in detections kind of at the edge, right? We think a lot about what can you detect when you've got the packet in memory, because there's a whole bunch of things that we're, where you uniquely have to do that. And what can you do when you've got large timescale series of data, right? You know, broader-based anomaly detection, things like that. So we, we apply kind of quite a bit of ML uh, as well as a bunch of other math in that one. And then on AI, that's been a real eye-opener. We do find that whether it's a, a customer's in-house AI or ML initiative or whether it's kind of through a, through a third-party vendor, it turns up that actually having the right data is essential to making every single one of those initiatives work. I was talking to an organization in DC just a few weeks ago, Washington, DC, and it was meeting with the, the head of a pretty large SOC, you know, hundreds of people. And I asked him, like, why was this even worth your time? Why did you take the meeting? And he said, it's, it's really simple. You know, I've got a very scaled SOC. I've got a substantial security investment. I want to drive down my mean time to detection and mean time to recovery. The only way I do that is with automation. And to make my automation work, I need two things. I need great data and I need consistent data, right? And so we really see ourselves as, as the fuel to help to not only supply our own AI and ML work, which we're doing a bunch of, but actually supply and accelerate 
a lot of what our customers and our technology partners are doing on that front as well. Yeah, that actually totally makes sense. When you think about having different types of data sets and typically each data set presents a different kind of view of the world and it can often be quite hard to bring those all together in a way that's easy for people to actually navigate. And I think there's actually great potential to to automate those kind of processes and figure out what the key things that actually mean something and and here's a way to pull all that data out so that someone can sort of step through like a timeline of events. That all kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, it is. And I think it, it kind of goes back to where we started, right? Of One of the big values of the network being the connectivity that it provides across the stages of an attack and across multiple other alerts that might be being generated. And you know, kind of bridging that back to the kind of AI and ML discussion, we do find that organizations always have to wrestle with how much data they keep from all these various sources and kind of where does it all make sense. And what I've been surprised by pleasantly is that a lot of folks will keep the alerts from all their various security tools. I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer, but they will often keep the raw telemetry on the network much more than they'll keep the telemetry from the other tool sets because it has this, it gives you this behavioral baseline that you can look back into both to uh, to give you a historical record, but also just to accelerate your day-to-day triage and IR, you know, not just massive franchise breaches like we were talking about, but you know, kind of your day-to-day alert investigation. Brian Dye, CEO of Corelight, thanks a lot. Tom, great talking. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.